Good morning, church. Good to see you. Hey, listen, we're, uh, we're in message six of this uh, seven-part series, so one more message next week uh, on the glory of God as we, um, as we wrap this up. Um, and it's a, it's a series on the church, and you're uh, sitting in church here uh, this morning, or you're uh, watching on the live stream uh, right now, and so it might be safe for me to assume that you're into church. Like if I know you're in church, I can see you, uh, but but it, it would be safe to assume that because you're here, you're also into church. And and maybe some of you are like, well, I'm just here investigating. I'm I'm visiting. I'm checking it out. Uh, I'm not yet into it, but um, nevertheless, you're here. And so you think that maybe there might be something to this. And I think that's what I'm getting at is that uh, whether you're here or whether you're um, here and you're really into it, or you're here and you're investigating it, there's something in you that says, there's something to this. <clears throat> there's something about church. And if that's true, if, if you do believe that there's something to this, then it would follow, there should be this corresponding sense that I'd like others to experience the thing that I'm experiencing in the church. And that's the moment when we go from believing that there's something here to then wanting others to experience it. That's the moment that mission, the mission of Jesus Christ is born in our hearts. And that's what we need to talk about today as we continue this series. It's called We Are Harvest. It's a series that's locking down the DNA or, uh, of our church or what makes our church uh, what it is. And uh, for today, uh, this matter of others experiencing what we experience in the church is what we're going to look at. It's the mission that God has given to us. And so here's the statement. It's uh, in your notes. It's on the screen. We plant churches. And the number one rationale and motivation for doing that is this, because Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church, and therefore we want to plant more churches. Now, uh, this is a thing. Locking down the fact that Jesus actually loves the church, this is a thing because there are people who say that they love Jesus but not the church. But to say that you love Jesus and you don't love the church is actually an oxymoron. It's an impossibility. If you don't like the church... You don't like Jesus. It's really as simple as that. If you don't like the church, you don't like Jesus because the church is his body. Now, I have a, like a super awkward illustration to use at this point, so I hope you're okay with that. Everybody okay with a super awkward illustration? So this would be like to say that you love Jesus but not the church would be to go up to somebody in the lobby after church and to say, I like you, but I don't like your body. <laughs> Hashtag awkward, right? Was I, was I right about it being an awkward illustration? I like you, and I don't like your body. And that's obviously awkward for people, but when it comes to Jesus in the church, and the church is his body, it's not just awkward, but it's aberrant theology. It's false doctrine. It's patently unbiblical to say that you love church, Jesus and not the church. In fact, Paul was writing in a, in a passage that has to do with marriage, 
And in a, in a, in a part of that instruction in, in Ephesians chapter 5, he's instructing husbands to love their wives. And the standard by which the husband is to love his wife is, is, the, is the standard by which Jesus loves the church. And he says this in Ephesians 5, 29 and 30, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Jesus takes care of his own body because it's his own flesh. And we are members, the verse goes on to say, we are members of his body. So Jesus loves his flesh. Jesus loves his body. Jesus loves the church. And here's the very simple logic of it for each of us. If Jesus loves the church, you and I should love the church. Amen? If Jesus loves the church, you and I must love the church. And to take it a step further, we should therefore want more people to come to the church and beyond that, want more churches for people to come to. We want this available to everyone. And by the way, in message one, because some of you might be doing the intellectual math at this point, and you're saying, well, is Jesus talking about the universal church or the local church? Like, which is it in message one? We talked about that. We defined both of those terms, what the universal church is and what a local church is. And we concluded that the local church from the scriptures, the local church is the visible representation of the universal and unseen church. So it's safe to say Jesus loves both. He loves the universal church, the unseen church that is his body, all times, all, all believers from all parts of history, but he also loves that local expression. He loves the local church. You say, well, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to love the church. You say, like, I, I had an experience. A church I used to go to, there was a thing. You know what I'm talking about? It was a thing. People were terrible. I was hurt in the midst of it. And I get it, because it's happened here too. There was a thing, almost 21 years. You can bet there was more than one thing that happened here over all those years. And in fact, the reality is I don't know a church. I've been doing ministry for a long time. I've interacted with a lot of pastors. I continue to do so. Worked with a lot of churches. I just don't know a church that hasn't had a thing. The reality is if you have people in the church, then you have sin in the church. And when you have people, you have sin. And when you have sin, you have things that happen in the church. And yet we're called upon still to love the church as Jesus loved the church. I mean, some of the things that we've gone through here were, were terrible. They were intense. And yet we still are called to love the church, to see God at work, to see this as his body. In fact, I remember more than a dozen years ago now, um, on the very worst day of the entire almost 21 years of our church's history, the very, very worst day, the worst Sunday of all, wished I didn't have to be here for it. And yet in the, in the front row, there was a new couple who had never been to our church before. 
And afterwards, I did the thing that I do. I go to Guest Central. I was meeting them. And they were like, oh, we love church this morning. This is the best church we've ever been to. And I went like, were you in the same church that I was in this morning? Because this was like the worst Sunday ever. I didn't say that to them. And then I thought, because they were coming from another church, I thought, like, how bad was their other church <laughs> that they thought this one was good, like, and awesome, and the way they talked about it, and they eventually became, like, members here and, and serving and just pouring themselves into the life of the church in the better days. God calls us to love the church. Jesus loves the church, even in its brokenness. Jesus loves the church. And in fact, in Revelation 2.3, this is really reinforced. In Revelation 2.3, we, we have, um, those two chapters have seven letters to seven local churches. Letters from Jesus to these churches, five of which needed rebuke for things that were happening in the church that weren't great. Rebukes of various degrees, various intensities for things that were not becoming of the body of Christ. And he also praised them for things they were getting right. He issued a few warnings for things that they were getting wrong. And why did he do that? Why did Jesus write seven letters to seven local churches? It's because he loved every one of them and he wanted to see them thrive. He wanted to see the Holy Spirit moving in the midst of every one of those churches. He loved them. Now, some of those warnings were very dire warnings. That the Spirit of God would literally be taken out of the church and God would walk away from it. There is a time to write off a local church when sin, when apostasy are, 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 are consuming the church. When vision and mission are all but lost. There can be a time to walk away but never hastily, never in a huff. Always remembering how much Jesus loves the church. And that's going to set us up well as we think about this vision and mission that we have as a church to plant churches. It starts with this motivation because Jesus loves the church. And secondly, we plant churches in partnership with others. We're not going it alone. We're not doing it in our own strength. The history of, of our church here, of Harvest here, starts actually before kind of the marker point for our history, which is September 2001, our launch. But actually the history of the church goes into the early 90s when a group of, group of people here in Barrie started a church called the Evangelistic Center. I think it only had that name for about a year before it was changed to Hope Community Church. They met in a couple of different uh, locations, and uh, right at the end of that first seven years of that church's history, they were meeting at the Sunnydale Community Center, Dorian Parker Center now, and um, and you know they were they were down to um, they were down to about thirty or forty people. They didn't have a pastor leading them, and they had about seven thousand dollars in the bank, and that was it. They did have a conversation at that time because they had no. Uh, pastor and uh, not, not a lot of money and no building, they just talked about whether or not they should just shut it down, and whether they should tell the 40 people that were going to church there that they should just find another church in town to attend and be a part of. But instead of going down that road, they started dreaming about what could be. They dreamed instead of finding a partner 
who would come alongside the church and help them relaunch it. So they wrote a letter. Um, they wrote this letter, and I think, you know, there was email back then, but, but they were thinking snail mail letters. Like we, They actually wrote a letter, they put it on paper, they had like a, a letterhead, and they were getting ready. They assembled this list of all these different churches that were into, larger churches in the United States and Canada that were really into planting churches. That's where our vision is going to come from. And we'll just tell them, adopt us and replant us. So they assembled all the letters. They had the list. But before a single letter was sent in the summer of 2000, a group of people from Hope Community Church went up to Muskoka Bible Center up in, in Huntsville. And they met a group of people from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. And before any of those letters were sent, and those letters were never sent out, God brought about a plan, brought about a plan as a result of that meeting that saw them shut down, close Hope Community Church, and then relaunch it um, in the fall of 2000, kind of in a soft launch kind of way, without kind of it being a full Harvest Bible Chapel, but relaunched it under the care of Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. And this was going to be Harvest's very first church plant outside of the Chicago area. In fact, their vision, they'd only planted one church, and their vision was to plant 10 churches in 10 years in the Chicago area. And so they weren't even thinking about Canada. They weren't even thinking outside of Chicago, but God redirected their plan. Now, listen, what I want you to hear in that story, because I love that story. I love the way God pulled it all together. But what I really want to hear, what I want you to hear in that story is the partnership part. The fact that a group of people in a little struggling church said, we need a partner who will vision with us and allow us to grow this church. And that kind of partnership is the very same thing we see in the Word of God. I could have used a lot of different examples for this, but in Acts chapter 13, here's what we see. And this is really the first Jerusalem was planted, and they went into Judea and Samaria, and then they started going to the uttermost part, and a church in Antioch was established. And this is what we read in Acts 13. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Then he lists a few of these. Barnabas, Simeon, who's called uh, Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. I just like to pause on that one for a second. Just think about the fact that Manaen and Herod were like school buddies, grew up together, lifelong friends. But now this guy who is like best buds with Herod is a Christian and he's in the church in Antioch and he's all about the mission. So I love that. And then Saul, uh, the, the apostle Paul. Now notice, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and they sent them off. And so you have this local church building its own thing, now deciding we're going to partner with these two in particular. We're going to send them out and they're going to start new churches. You see a partnership that begins with some faithful servants. This team is formed. The church sends them off. This is the first mission journey and it was about preaching the gospel, making disciples, planting churches. And once they had done that a bunch of times, Acts 14 tells us, when they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, back to the home base, back to the partner church, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And they reported to the church, having now established churches throughout Asia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And these churches were now partners with them in this great gospel enterprise. And in fact, one more partnership story is 
the gospel didn't just stay in Asia Minor, but it expanded out from them, from there through the whole Mediterranean world. And when the original church in Jerusalem was going through persecution and people were, they didn't have enough to eat, they were impoverished. It was those partner churches that had been established that took up an offering and sent it to Jerusalem to care for the church there. I love this partnership. And the heart of our elders has always been about partnership. And you know, if you know anything about our history, um, didn't happen here, but there was a thing that happened in our greater fellowship of churches five years ago. And um, our previous fellowship disbanded. And uh, we knew from that moment on that we wanted to find another network that would help us in the mission. And uh, so a year ago, we joined Acts 29 Canada. And this past week, I had the privilege of being back in Montreal for some meetings. It was the uh, English-speaking Anglo churches of Quebec, uh, plus the two um, Ontario churches and a couple of other prospects. And we, we got together for a couple days of meetings with church planters, and we talked strategy, we encouraged one another, we, we prayed for God's favor on this gospel work uh, that we're seeking uh, to do. And we're asking God to, to grow this thing we're doing and to give us a greater vision and to, and to supply our needs so that we could multiply our opportunities right across Canada. And we're grateful for this partnership because this network that we belong to, Acts 29, it's exactly where our heart is at with respect to partnerships. Acts 29 is a diverse, global community of healthy, multiplying churches characterized, and this is what's so important to us, theological, characterized by theological clarity, cultural engagement, and missional innovation. And I unpacked all of that last year in a message when we were just getting into this partnership. And uh, we love every aspect of this. There's no time right now to go into all the elements of that. But we need this. We need this partnership. We need this network for us. This partnership means the ability to plant more churches. Because this network and the other churches that are in it help us. And we help them. And so it follows then that when we do this, or the way that we do this is by developing, notice this next in our outline, by developing and appointing planters. If you're going to plant churches, you have to have planters that are going to plant them. We need pastors. And in Paul's, Paul's final letter, the Apostle Paul, he writes this final letter just before he's executed. And he writes this letter to Timothy, who's a young pastor. And he says to him, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, Paul's saying the training that I gave you, I want you to take that training and I want you to train other pastors, not only so they can do it, but so they can train other pastors. And we've been seeing this verse repeated generation by generation now for almost 2,000 years. We're to be doing the same thing. It's been entrusted to us. I was called to be a leader. People have poured into me. I was mentored. I was taught the things that they were taught. I've now spent time teaching others, want to continue to do that, to multiply leaders. The same counsel was not only given to Timothy, but given to Titus in Paul's letter to him. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus so that you might put what remained into order. We went around, we preached the gospel, all these people got saved. We formed them into churches. Here's what I need you to do now. Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
So not only is it about finding church planters, mentoring them and getting them to go out and plant, that's what Titus did, but now it's about also multiplying local leaders. It's finding elders who can oversee the work in each individual local church. And with the time that God has left for me, I want to be doing what most benefits the kingdom of God and fulfills the mission. That's what I want to put my energy into, exactly what we're talking about here. I'm blessed to be in a church that is committed to this same mission, a church that gets it. I'm committed to serve alongside elders who are on mission, who get it, who want to plant churches. And so the task before all of us is identify those who would be planters, to recruit them to come and start new churches, to equip to, to, to equip them and train them so they can plant churches, to encourage them along the way, because it's one of the most discouraging things you can do. To go to a new area, to start a new church, to seek to lead people to Jesus. And so we want to encourage and we want to send planters out. And here's the thing, here's, here's what the church needs to know. There's a cost to this. It's not an easy thing to start a new church. The resources that God has entrusted to the church are essentially twofold. If I could boil it down to two things that God gives to the church as resources, one is people and the other is money. We have people and we have money and we can deploy the people and we can deploy the money to fulfill the mission. And church planting draws down heavily on both people and financial resources, but this is the mission. This is the very thing that God is going to hold us as a church to account for. And I always have this verse that's like echoing in my head where Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. And I think about the starting of this church and how much Harvest Chicago poured into the starting of this church. We also started with fewer than 100 people. But we had a church behind us that was helping us train leaders and giving us a model for ministry and encouraging us along the way and giving us counsel when we needed it, but also pouring in the financial resources that we could start this church. And doing it, by the way, U.S. dollars coming in the early 2000s when the Canadian dollar was 61 cents. Thank you very much. Cha-ching, right? We had a lot of money. Then, then just a few years ago when we were opening this building because we had spent 16 years in schools and, and, and when we got this building in Harvest Chicago, again, our mother church so excited for us. They said, we want to give you a check for 150000 U.S. We just want you to get a few extra things for your building. We put some of that money into our audiovisual system, and we put the cross on the front of the building. We bought furniture for the lobby with a gift from the church in Chicago. But here's, here's what I, why I'm telling you this is because so much has been entrusted to us, and I feel the weight and responsibility of that. To whom much is given, much is required. And so as we think about that, we don't just sit here and, and enjoy the things that we've been given, but we want to now give that out. We want to we spread that out. We want to reinvest that as it was invested in us. We want to reinvest that 
in others. It must all be leveraged to send out planters and to plant churches. And so when I think about this, what are, what are some of the ways? How is this going to cost us? Well, first of all, I, I want to say, say this to parents. We have teenagers here who are thinking about this kind of thing and going and planting churches. And we have parents who are holding sway over their children in some way and influencing them. And I know that most parents who have children who are finishing high school and want them to go to university and get the degree at one of the better universities and to get the good job and get the six-figure salary and, 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 and all of that and set themselves up for life, and that's really not the goal at all. The mission is to see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, and the best thing you could possibly do is encourage your children to consider a life of ministry, to give themselves directly and entirely to this very mission. Will you do that? Will you pray about that? Will you commit your children to Christ in this way? And I love some of the things that are going on here to, to prepare ourselves for this. And I feel like the next 10 years, again, if God gives us the grace to do this, the next 10 years are going to be the most important 10 years in the life of our church. But we have this thing developing in our high school ministry, coming out of our high school ministry. It's, called, it's, a, it's a gap year program that Jordan is just now beginning to put together where uh, after the kids are done high school, that they can enter this gap year program where we'll develop them right here. We'll develop them in theological training and in ministry experience and developing their passion for the mission before they go to university or college. We're going to develop that right here. So these kids are here working on the mission without having to go away. We have, uh, through our partnership with Acts 29, access to a Master of Arts in Biblical Leadership. It's a competency-based master's degree, fully accredited, that works through the 11 competencies of Acts 29 and prepares a pastor to plant a church. And then through Acts 29, we just have the coaching and the assessment processes that are available to us and all of that, just examples of how we're leveraging what we have to call up the resources and to get on the mission. All right, here's another. We must also plant churches dependent on the Holy Spirit. And I feel like this is the right time to talk about this because the last two points have been very much strategically oriented. Our plans, what we're doing. But we need to acknowledge that we are wholly dependent on the Holy Spirit. What we're doing here cannot be accomplished by human effort and, and by ingenuity, though, though both are very evident in the process. And God gives us the intelligence to pull off these things. He gives us the strength to do it. But we are wholly dependent on the Holy Spirit to bring about any genuine eternal effect or results. We turn so often to Acts chapter 2 because it provides us such a wonderful model. But in verse 47, notice the description of the first church in Jerusalem, praising God and having favor with all the people. And notice the Lord added. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is a spirit-dependent exercise and enterprise that we are engaged in. It's the Lord who adds to our number. We can do all the other things, but ultimately, only the Lord can bring about conversion. Paul went on that first missionary journey. We talked about it on his second mission. Paul went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go to 
into Asia and Bithynia, and that was really on their heart. Paul thought, I'm just going to circle all the way around Turkey, Asia Minor. I'm going to do that whole scene. And as he was contemplating doing that, there was like this obstacle, and they couldn't kind of, they couldn't turn right to continue on with the journey. And instead, that night, he had this vision of a man in Macedonia. This is all in Acts chapter 16. He has this man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia. Well, that's in Europe, by the way. The gospel hadn't gone to Europe. The gospel had been around Israel and up into Syria. It had now moved into Turkey. But it had not yet been preached in Europe. And here's this man in Macedonia calling out standing there urging him saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And so having been redirected by the Holy Spirit, instead of turning right and continuing on in the north part of Turkey, Paul hops on a boat and crosses the Aegean Sea, goes into Macedonia and churches like Thessalonica and Berea and Philippi were planted. And the gospel was preached. Paul concluded, and this is what um, Acts 16.10 says, Paul concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to the Europeans, to them. The Spirit directed the mission. Paul had a plan, and it's great to have a plan. You have to have a plan. Paul had a plan, and the Spirit redirected the plan. And so we have a plan. We've had a plan for about 11 years now that we first set out, and uh, we had a plan even before that, but the 11 years ago, we set up this plan that we wanted. We recognized that Simcoe County was a huge county. We felt like this was our Judea. This was our area that we needed to reach, and that it was unreasonable to assume that people from all over Simcoe County, Ramera, Collingwood, Wasega Beach, Alliston, all over Innisfil, that, that those, all of those areas would just simply come here to church. And that what we wanted to do was put a Harvest Bible Chapel within a 15-minute drive of every person in Simcoe County. And that would require five or six locations to be established over a period of several years. And we were also along the way, and we haven't, we haven't accomplished any of that yet, but that's our vision. But along the way, we were, really, we were really open to whatever God might redirect us to do. So we had this idea of doing this, but maybe God was going to have us turn left and cross the Aegean Sea, so to speak. And so we've had uh, the opportunity over the last bunch of years, we were um, instrumental in planting Harvest Muskoka up in Huntsville and Harvest Glasgow in Scotland. They're wonderful partners, both of those churches with us. We sent a planter out to do Harvest in Newmarket, now Redemption um, Bible Chapel or Bible Church in, um, in Newmarket. It was Mike who was on our staff for quite a number of years. We planted churches in Douala and Yaoundé most recently in Yaoundé, Cameroon. Those two churches are now working through the assessment process to become Acts 29 partner churches with us. And this coming week, in fact, we think about all of that, but this coming week, we have an interview with uh, another planter, um, a potential planter, and he's going to come to our elders on Tuesday. And this is, again, outside of Simcoe County, but an opportunity has been presented to us to plant in another Ontario city. And we're going after that because we believe God is directing that. So pray for us as we interview that planter on Tuesday evening. And we're simply seeking to be obedient to the Spirit's leading. And even if we never accomplish the full goal for Simcoe County, we feel as long as we're obeying the Spirit and starting churches and seeing people come to Christ, um, then uh, we feel like we're on mission and doing the thing that God has laid out for us to do. And so uh, we have our plans. We're seeking to be obedient to the Spirit's leading. That seems to me to be the best strategy. Amen?
follow the Spirit's leading. All right, here's another one. We plant churches to influence and bless. Here's the reason why we do it. We plant churches to influence and bless the culture around us. And the matter of a Christian's role in culture and the church's role in culture and society, that's like a front and center issue right now with what we've recently gone through or are still going through with the pandemic in these latter days of it. By saying that we're to influence and bless the culture, I do not mean that we are to impose Christianity on the country that we live in. That we're not supposed to be, as a primary mission, imposing Christianity or a biblical ethic on the culture. That's not our mandate. That's not our mission. And yet there are countless opportunities for us as Christians and as a church to show the world around us, to show our city, to show our county the love of Jesus Christ. And that love of Christ is going to attract people to the gospel. We're to share the love of Christ with those who don't know him. And in that way, yes, there's going to be a residual effect, a secondary effect on the culture. We are to, as the, as the prophet Micah said, we are to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And all of that will be attractive to the world around us. And it's, it's critical that we do this. It's critical that we live in this way. Because this world is dying. The Apostle John wrote this in 1 John 2.17. He said, the world is passing away. The world is dying because the world is infected by sin. We've talked about ourselves in, in, as being sinners, but, but the effect of sin is not just on human beings. The effect of sin has, has, has impacted the entire world. It's affected the earth itself, the physical planet that we live on, so that there are massive environmental issues, so that there is climate change, so that, so that we are affected by some of the challenges uh, related to the extinction of species, things that God created that we don't have anymore. Those are the effects of sin marring the creation that God gave us. But it's not just about the physical planet. There's also the world system, the geopolitical realities of our world, the economic realities of our world. And this is really more to the Apostle, Apostle John's point in his letter that's the world really that's passing away. It's the world system. It's dying. The diagnosis is in. I mean, the patient's not dead yet, but is dying. And to push the illustration further into an area that many of us can understand, planet Earth and this world system is in palliative care. And there are no more treatment options for this world. You and I are at the bedside. And soon, if not already, we are watching as the earth and the world system take its final breaths. And this is consistent with what we read in other parts of the scripture. It's consistent with what Jesus said about this world. 
Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away. We're not rescuing planet earth and we're not going to be able to reformed the, reform the culture or the world system enough that it will be saved. Jesus pronounced it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The gospel is forever. And I say this because this world needs Jesus. This world's number one pressing need more than anything else is Jesus Christ. People need the gospel. They need to be told that their hope is not in saving the country. Their hope is not in transforming the culture. It's not. It's never going to happen. It's in, it's in saving lost souls one by one. That's our hope. It's by saving those who are still in their sins and who are part of this dying world. It's pointing them beyond this world to the eternity to come and the hope that Christ gives us in the eternal city that God promises to those who come to the cross of Christ in faith, confessing their sin and their brokenness and seeing Jesus as the only solution and savior for that. So we must be influencing this world, influencing it with the gospel. Jesus said as much to us in Matthew 5, this is in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, and he said, you're the salt of the earth. Further, he said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So the natural result, Jesus says, the natural result of Christians really living out their faith in the context of the community that we call the church will be that the world around us will be impacted and changed by that. Light casts out darkness and cities all over this world, every city of this world is gripped by darkness. Salt flavors and preserves and gives life. And listen, when we are living what Philip Yancey called the radically dissimilar life of a Christian, when we're living the radically dissimilar life of a Christian, the life that Jesus describes in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, which is so radical, shockingly radical, this is the thing that will get people's attention. And when we produce the fruit of the Spirit, we see the Holy Spirit working in us to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Then the culture around us will be impacted. Even while still being, people will be impacted even while the culture around us is still very much unsaved. When the governments and countries of our world are still very much anti-God, individuals will be coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Lives will be transformed and justice and mercy will flow out from those who know Jesus. And that's going to happen because churches get planted. 
Here's a final one. We plant churches. We've touched on this already. We plant churches to save sinners. And it makes sense that if the mission is to make disciples, and, and that is the mission, then the mission also includes starting churches for those disciples to gather in. In fact, the first group of disciples who form a church will soon find that the church that they've started is much more successful than anything they've ever been a part of in actually reaching more people who don't know Jesus. Study after study in missiology will tell you and in church planting will tell you Brand new churches are the number one best means of leading people to Jesus Christ. So we need to plant churches. We need to make disciples and we need to plant churches. And those two phrases, make disciples, plant churches, are really a tandem. They're intertwined in terms of mission. Paul speaks in 1 Timothy 3.15 of the church of the living God being the pillar and buttress of truth. The truth is the gospel and there's no salvation apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all sinners. We all need to be saved. That's the mission of the church. And the first church saw the result of the gospel preaching. Again, back to Acts chapter 2, but also 4 and 5. Look what was happening in the first months of the new church. 3,000 souls were added. Then then 5,000 souls were added. And then more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes, they, they'd stopped counting. They just said multitudes of both men and women. We're here to save sinners. That's it. That's the entire mission. Tony Morita uh, wrote a brand new book called The Faithful Church Planter. He's the director of theological education for Acts 29. I'm going to give the last word to him. By planting churches, we have the privilege of being on God's, in on God's sovereign work in the world. God's redemptive plan has always involved having a people for himself. When you start a church, you're doing more than starting an event at a storefront, a school, under a tree, in a house, or at some other location. You're actually participating in this grand narrative of God having a people for himself, a story that culminates in John's glorious vision in Revelation, where a people from every tribe and language and people and nation are giving praise to the Lamb. This vision compels us to be faithful in our present generation until the mission is finished. This Vision compels us. So harvest, let's plant some churches. Amen? Let's plant some churches. Let me pray for us. Father, I am uh, again so grateful. Uh, I know there are so many people, even Christians, who know Jesus and have had their sins forgiven, who struggle with this idea of purpose and why am I here and what am I supposed to be doing? Yet God, you have made that abundantly clear in the scriptures and no matter what a person does, ultimately their vision, what they should be doing relates to leading people to Jesus, making disciples. And obviously now we understand planting churches. And so God, I pray that you'd be stirring this up in everyone in our church, that as a church, we would own this and we would desire God to please you in fulfilling this mission.
God, where, where some of us need to repent for not being engaged in that, God, I pray that we would repent. I'm grateful that for some of us who are ignorant coming into this, God, you've taught us. Some have been discouraged by previous church experiences. God, lift them up, encourage them, renew the flame of a vision, a, a passion, a burning desire, Father, to be engaged in this mission again. God, stir this up in the hearts of, of young people in our church and old to go, to start something new, to be engaged in the vision, to give toward it, to pray for it, God. That, God, we would be pleasing you, glorifying you in all of this. You would love what you see in your church, that if you wrote a letter to us, God, you would be commending us for what we're doing to reach this world. So God, make this true. Move Holy Spirit in our midst. I pray this in Christ's name.